Well, uh, last week was uh, quite, quite a wonderful message, Israel. You um, really presented the word, and I, I really appreciate it. And I look forward to our pastors being back next week, as uh, Israel said, 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock, back to the normal service. Um, um, I think it was almost two months ago that that Pastor Frank Sr. asked me about sharing uh, this morning. um, I have shared in years past, um, so it wasn't something totally new, but it's been a while. And I, by nature, am a very uh, shy person. So I have been so nervous. (laughs) I don't ever really, I don't ever get really ready for presenting, and, uh, and I take it as a very serious responsibility, uh, as well as an honor to just share with the saints. So I'll just pray. Lord, we just thank you for your grace, your mercy, your time of fellowship with us and our fellowship with you. We thank you that wherever two or three are gathered, you're there, and so we have you in our midst, and we are seated in the heavenlies right now in Christ at your very right hand. And so we just give you this time. We ask, Father, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and just... Just meet us, Father, meet us, and that through our time together of fellowship that we would see more of Christ, and we ask this in his name, amen. <coughs> uh, right before uh, uh, Pastor Frank asked, talked to me about it, I had uh, read, um, it was an article, it's really a message that was given, a spoken message given in 1933 uh, by a fellow named uh, Theodore Austin Sparks. He uh, he lived from 1888 to 1971. He was from England, and um, I, I have a, a daily devotional thing that, you know, every morning you get it, and I got one, and it's usually just a couple of paragraphs out of something, and, and it was this particular article, and uh, so at the bottom, you could click on it, and you could read the whole article. I, I did, and uh, the title was Maturity, The Lord's Desire for His People, and I had actually read it several times, just contemplating what um, Brother Sparks had to say about that. And, and so I had it, it's been on my mind ever since. And so I, um, you know, I printed it out and I just made some notes and I brought in some scripture and uh, I didn't want to just read the article to you and put you to sleep, so I won't do that. <laughs> I'm just going to share with you. Um, and actually, as you know, I made the notes, and I'd go over it and add to it and take a little bit and print it. I probably printed the thing about seven times over the last probably three or four weeks. <clears throat> and um, so I almost know it by heart. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I woke up about three o'clock last night, uh, and I've been so nervous. Lord, uh, what am I going to say? How am I going to do this? Uh, I'm not a preacher. I'm just a, a, um, one saved saint. Uh, and as I lay there, it's like 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm just thinking about the, uh, the, uh, about the day, about the article, and I felt like the Lord just kind of began just kind of bringing things together in a certain way. So I'm just going to kind of share what um, I, I felt the Lord was kind of leading me into and thinking about. And the first thing that, that I kind of saw in my mind that I thought the Lord was talking about was uh, you've got eternity, eternity, past, present, all around it. And then you have time, and time is like a book with a beginning and an end. And in the beginning, we know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know that Genesis is there, and the end of it in Revelation, there's a new heaven and a new earth. 
So you have a beginning and end of this book called time. <clears throat> and of course, in that beginning, when God created all things, one of the things he did was he said, let us make man in our image. And of course, God made man. He made them male and female. So in his heart, he didn't just make Adam, but he made Adam and Eve. Of course, uh, after Adam, um, Eve was taken out of his side. We know how that uh, goes. And, and so it started with the desire of a relationship. Let us make man in our image. And then you have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You have, as it were, a family relationship in that. And um, in the Genesis, it talks about the fact that um, God walked with them in the cool of the day. And so there was fellowship. Um, and, of course, they had the Garden of Eden. They have everything there. And they were to freely eat of any tree except one. Of course, we know the story. Um, don't eat from that tree lest you die. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> because God wanted Adam and Eve to be totally dependent upon him uh, and not to be independent, deciding themselves what was good and evil. And we know that uh, Eve was deceived. And she gave to Adam, and he uh, disobeyed God. And he took and he ate. And, and God had said, in the, in the day that you eat, you will die. And it was a spiritual death. And then that followed with physical death after that. So uh, when Adam partook, this says their eyes were opened, they saw they were naked, and, and it changed them. They no longer had fellowship with God on the basis of what they'd had before. What happened was they spiritually died. And, and the Bible tells us God is a spirit. And they didn't uh, worship him, we worship in spirit and truth. And so they fell out of um, correspondence with God who created them. You know, they went and they hid. And uh, God, looking for them, says, Adam, where are you? You know, I saw, a, uh, I saw a translation. Instead of, Adam, where are you? They translated it, Adam, why are you where you are? And that sounded to me more a little bit like God, because God is God, and he knew where they were, but he's calling out to them, asking why. And, of course, Adam responded, uh, we, we hid. We hid from you. And so that family fellowship had been broken, and Adam and Eve had died spiritually. Of course, God provided, they covered themselves with, uh, with, uh, uh, with leaves, but then God provided skins. And um, I think that that, it doesn't say so in that, but it does say animal skins, and so those skins mean that there was a sacrifice so that they would have those. And and that sacrifice foreshadowed, as we know, the, the sacrifice of Jesus, who is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. And as you go through there, um, Israel was um, taught how to make a sacrifice, and the ultimate sacrifice was that lamb, the unblemished lamb, the Passover lamb. <clears throat> and even in Job, which they considered to be the uh, oldest book in the Bible, in the beginning, it, you know, when, when uh, uh, the description about Job is there, it says that he made the sacrifices on behalf of his sons and his daughters. Um, so th there was something that transpired in the life, and of course we know that happened in uh, Cain. Cain, he made the right sacrifice, Abel, I'm sorry, Abel made the right sacrifice, Cain did not, and it was not acceptable. Cain's was from the fruit uh, of 
the labors of his hands. And God said, no, that it's not what you do. It's what I provide in the lamb. Um, so we, if uh, we go from Adam down, of course, in the Lord Jesus Christ, he came in the fullness of time, and, and he died for our sins. Um, but God has always wanted that relationship with man. And in the Old Testament, everything was Passover. When, we said, when I see the blood on the doorpost, I will pass over. Because everything was going forward to the day when Jesus Christ would actually bear the sins of the whole world. And from that day on, it wasn't a Passover anymore. It was a completed uh, um, task, as it were. Because after, I think, the three hours of darkness, uh, when, uh, in that time, Jesus said, my, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then after that, after the darkness, after... The event that saves us is the very fact that God himself poured upon Jesus the consequences of the sins of every man, woman, and child from the beginning to the very end. He bore the sins of the whole world. He bore the consequences of that, which is spiritual death on behalf of every man, woman, and child. That happened in, the, and I think, a span of three hours. At the end of that time, he's still hanging there, but in that, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My, if you think about it, my God... Father, my God, Holy Spirit. And he, of course, is the Son. So God, as it were, turned his back on his Son because of the sin that was poured upon him. But at the end of that three hours, fellowship was restored. He had bore the, the sins of the whole world. He paid the price. And fellowship was restored because the Lord Jesus Christ said, it is finished. And he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. So he's, his fellowship is back. At that point on, it was no more Passover, but it was a completed, accomplished fact. And from that point on, everything up to the cross was looking forward. From that point on, it's all looking back to the cross, the completed, finished um, act of Jesus Christ on our behalf. <clears throat> now... Um, When I think about maturity, and as I was thinking about that, um, like what does maturity mean? We know that the first thing is that we believe in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, they, they, it was like the, all the instruction that was given by God was with a, a teaching, as it were, uh, a pointing toward a Messiah who would come. And, uh, and of course, we know that uh, it had to do with the lamb slain, the blood shed. Um, and so everything had to do with bringing man back to a state of fellowship with God. And then, of course, when it happened, and then with the, uh, the day of Pentecost, um, that was the day the church was born. When the Holy Spirit came down upon all those in the upper room, and everything happened, they were born again. And the Lord Jesus had said to Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. Except a man be born from above or born again, it can be said either way, uh, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven. So, and it was a new dispensation that started on Pentecost on that day. The body of Christ, which Paul, who became the apostle to the Gentiles, 
spoke over and over again about what he called my gospel or what he also called uh, my secret or uh, the mystery. Uh, you know, sometimes people say that the mystery had to do with Gentiles uh, believing, but they were, they were, that was not a mystery in the Old Testament. But the mystery was the fact that, and also in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon uh, prophets or individuals at certain times, but he did. But the Holy Spirit was not indwelling the individuals. Uh, but the indwelling of the Holy Spirit began at Pentecost, and that began the day when the church became, or the church came into being, as far as a uh, a living organism, we could call it. The head being Christ, and the body being uh, the members uh, of the body of Christ, and. Born again doesn't mean mature. And as I was thinking about this last night, it's like the Lord was just kind of bringing me to think about when you have a family, husband, wife, they come together and they have a child. And the child is an infant. And that child has to grow. It has to be cared for. And, and it has to learn how to speak learn how to walk and talk and take care of itself. And if it does not grow into a state of maturity, something's wrong. <clears throat> and when we're born again, there is that same analogy. And I, Paul made reference to that uh, quite a few times with reference to being, uh, when he spoke especially to the Corinthians. He said, you're, you're babes. I, I want to feed you strong meat, but I can't because... You are yet still babes, and so you need milk. <laughs> and so there is, and into the whole testament, there is that which represents the need for growing up into Him. And Paul called it growing up into Christ with reference to all things. And that growing up has to do with capacity. And I was thinking um, a number of years ago, uh, my son, when he was moving into teenage years, I used to go to prayer meeting every Friday night, and I went one evening, and I came back. He met me at the door, and uh, said, you want to go get something to eat? And I said, you want to go with me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so the two of us, we went to a Mexican place. We sat down, and we ate. We went to eat together and have fellowship because he wanted to. And he didn't have an agenda. <laughs> he just wanted to eat and talk. And I'll never forget that time. It was one of the most wonderful times where, as a father, I had a son who had grown up into a state where he wanted to have fellowship with me. And I felt like God was saying, what do you think that means to me? Whenever my children come to a state where they want to have fellowship with me, not because what I can do for them, although I can do many things for them, but because they want to know me and they want to have that fellowship. And, and to do that requires capacity. And uh, as I just kind of contemplated, what does it mean, and how do we have increased capacity? How do we have maturity and growth up into Christ? Of course, we know one of them is to study. Study to show yourself approved. And then, of course, the assembling together. But, and I think the crux of the article that Brother Sparks wrote about had to do with what can be really severe dealings. Child training, discipline. Um, and as he spoke of that, I just thought about the examples in the Bible of child training and what that means, discipline. Um, and you know, one of the first, I've always thought about Job 
God forgive me, I feel sorry for Job sometimes. <laughs> you know, in the beginning, um, God said Job was um, pretty special. Uh, I have to, let me look and see. I wrote a few notes about what, uh, what God said about him. I can find it real quick. Here it is. Uh, Job 1.3, God said that Job was the greatest of the men in the east. A and um, actually from Job 1.1, 1, 1, uh, God said that Job was a man who was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Um, that's, that's really something. But just a little bit later, we see a scenario where uh, the angels are in the presence of God and Satan is there. And God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? God initiated it. Have you considered my servant Job? And of course, you know, Job challenges God. Yeah, it's because of everything he has. And God gives Job permission. I'm sorry, God gives Satan permission to strip Job of his family, of his wealth. And... Um, and so Satan goes, and you know, there's the wind, there are the enemies that come, and uh, he loses all of his children, he loses all of his uh, animals, his wealth, uh, everything. Um, and yet it says Job didn't sin against God. And Job was already in that high position before God released Satan, can we say, to do that. It always kills me that God initiated it. God's the one who started... And, and we have that in the second chapter, Satan's in the presence of God, and God again asked Job, have you considered my servant Job? Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And, uh, and Jayton, uh, uh, Satan again challenges God. Um, you know, that famous word, skin for skin. All the man has, he'll give for his life. So God gives Satan... Again, permission, this time, to touch Satan's body. We know that he had boils all over. But God says you, can't, you have to spare his life. So Satan was not allowed to uh, kill Job, but he was allowed to bring uh, what must have been a very, very severe situation on Job's life. And then you have chapter after chapter after chapter where um, Job's friends come and they all say, okay, you, you got hidden sin. You know, confess. Uh, that's why. And Job goes through and he answers each one and another one comes back and he answers. Um, and you go um, through up to about chapter, uh, say chapter 23 and you get a hint of what was God's after. And actually, you know, Satan is there in the beginning, but then pretty soon Satan's not in the picture anymore. It's Job and his friends, we'll say his quote Christian friends, uh, accusing him. Um, and Job defending himself. In chapter 23, I think verse 3 through 7, Job, he says, and I'm paraphrasing, if I could get before God, I'd be able to plead my case, and surely God would pay attention to me. This is what Job says that's in there. You know, it's kind of a paraphrase of it. Um, and then chapter 32, uh, chapter 32, the verse 1, it says that Job 
was righteous in his own eyes. And verse 2 says that Job justified himself before or more than God. So as great as Job was, there was some hidden self-righteousness there. I mean, compared to me, (laughs) he was quite a man. But God saw a person and he wanted to do something more in that person's life with reference to making a greater place for himself. He wanted to expand Job's uh, Job's capacity. And um, all these times that Job is defending himself, saying, you know, I really don't have any sin, there isn't that. If I could get a, a... in the presence of God, I'd be able to explain it, and this they'd all be taken care of. <laughs> He'd understand. But uh, by the time we get to chapter 38, God starts speaking. And um, he answers Job. You remember out of the whirlwind. And he starts asking Job, like, where were you when I created the world? Where you, were you when I laid the stars in the heavens? He asked him a number of questions. Okay. Come on now, and God didn't answer any of Job's questions, but he asked Job enough questions so that Job was undone, you know. And, in fact, by the end of, uh, of the situation, Job, he said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the eye, but now, uh, I'm sorry, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. He got to the point where, through all this, he saw God in a greater way than he'd ever seen him before. He had more capacity. And of course, after that, we know that God blessed Job greater than uh, uh, the days before with family and everything. And I think really the next person um, that God deals with in a very significant way was Joseph. Um, You know, (laughs) Jacob favored Joseph, his son, above all the others. And I got a feeling with that coat of many colors and with the situation there, Joseph might have been a little spoiled. And so I don't think those other brothers cared for that too much. And especially, you remember Joseph had the dream? And in the dream, his brothers and his mother and father were in, you know, the sheaves were bowing down. And they knew that that that, jo- that uh, Joseph was saying, I had this dream and you're all going to bow down to me. And of course, it really upset them. And even his dad rebuked him. <laughs> what do you think you're saying something like that? Uh, so, you know, that's true. It turned out to be that way, but it all set itself up in such a way that, you know, his brothers, they threw him down in the pit. And they were going to kill him, but uh, when the, uh, the caravan came by, they sold him. And of course, he went on to Egypt um, can you imagine how many years it was and how Joseph could have become so embittered to his brothers, to Potiphar's wife? He was so good in Potiphar's household that Potiphar said, I'm leaving you in charge of everything. And he, you know, he, he did not do anything, but his wife, Potiphar's wife accused him. And then, of course, he's in prison. And, uh, you know, I read a commentary that said... Uh, in a case like that, normally Joseph would have been put to death because of Potiphar and who he was in the accusation. So the guy was saying Potiphar knew something probably about his wife. So instead of killing him, he put him in prison. 
And of course, that's the hand of God there too. But even in prison, you remember when Joseph um, interpreted the dreams? And the cupbearer, he says, when you get back up there, remember me to the king. You know? And he didn't. So Joseph could have been upset about that too. Uh, even in the time that he's in prison, he acts with such integrity that he is given a sense of a position of responsibility down there too. Um, God, you know, I read this thing, no second causes. In fact, back in Job, the second time that uh, God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Um, God also says, you incited me against him. I think we have to agree. I mean, there's a hardness here where what is God's will and what is the sin of man, especially right now, all these shootings and everything, you know. And I, I remember reading, uh, and the statement was, there are no second causes. Well, everything that happens has to pass through the will of God. God, he is not the author of sin. There is no darkness, no shadow of turning in him. So, God is God, and he's sovereign, but he has placed in, in the hands of man a free will. He stands above it, and he governs the consequences of the free will, and he kills and he makes alive. So God is up there. And if you go back, remember I said that we have the time is a book. God is outside of it. He's eternal. And he looks at this book and he sees the end from the beginning. And, and we're like, oh, we're at a page right here. At 19, was it 2021? This is page May 30th, 2021. And we can see what's behind us so we remember. And we can kind of imagine what's going to happen in the future, but we don't know that. But we're in this. But God is outside of time. And he looks down, he sees the end from the beginning. And he's eternal. And he is infinite. And we're finite. So there's a point where the infinite God and the finiteness of man come and it can't cross over. We can never fully understand. In fact, in Isaiah, uh, God says, your ways and your thoughts are not my ways and thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, my ways and my thoughts are above yours. So he separates us from himself and says, you can't judge me. You cannot, do, you cannot sit back and judge what I do or what do I allow. Uh, you need to live by faith. You need to obey me. You have certain criteria. We have, in the, especially in the New Testament, we have instruction after instruction after structure, instruction on how to live and how to exercise faith. And so we're not left independent um, and we are, we are placed in a situation where we are to um, live by the life of Christ, live by the life of the indwelling Holy Spirit. But there is a criteria there um, because we, in Adam, all died. When Adam sinned, there was spiritual death. And then, so we're born spiritually dead, but we, uh, when we believe in Jesus Christ, are born again, and are in the beginning babes, and we need to grow. And so there's that criteria for growing. And in that criteria, there are, there are two, two sides to it. I, I, I think there's our side where we, where we study, where we meet together, and then there's a side where God looks at each one of us individually, and in his omnipotence, 
He knows what set of circumstances to permit, to allow, that will bring us to that greatest place of uh, capacity for him. And when, like, okay, what does maturity mean? You know, it, there is that which represents fellowship with him in this time, and it also represents some degree of our being able to fulfill um, the calling that God has to, to give us in this time. But God's always working toward eternity, and that's a great deal of what Sparks has to say. Sparks, I remember he said one time that he was always looking to the day after tomorrow. To him, tomorrow is the millennial reign. The day after is the eternal state. But even the uh, millennial reign, Paul said to the Corinthians, remember whenever they were bickering and kind of going to court, and he said, don't you know that you will judge the world? Don't you know you'll judge angels? That word judge includes government. It includes administration. So we have in the New Testament the instruction that, um, and you know, we were told about one who would, the, the uh, faithfulness of an individual depends on how many, and the analogy was how many cities they would govern. Well, that's an analogy, and I don't know exactly how it, uh, uh, it will play out. But the bottom line is that we are told that we are being brought to a state of maturity, brought to a place of capacity that we might uh, exercise administration and government in, uh, I believe it's really clearly the millennial reign, because when he comes back, we'll come back with him. And, and so there is that which represents a correlation between the degree of maturity and capacity we come into in this life and how that will work out in the millennial, uh, in the millennial reign. Uh, of course, once we leave this life, either through death or the rapture, um, and we enter into that eternal state, whether it's we're with him in the millennial reign or on, uh, for us, it says there are no more tears, no more sorrow. So what, I mean, there can be loss for us as we leave this earth, but it'll be a momentary loss. I mean, we're going to be bright stars. Um, you know, in, uh, in Corinthians, Paul was talking about the resurrection. And uh, remember he said there's one degree of, of glory for the sun, for the moon. One star differs from another in the resurrection. And I've... Uh, I've read and heard that be talked about. Someone at one time, they said, well, let's just, in the eternal state, let's compare Demas. Remember, Demas was a worker with Paul, but then later on, I think he wrote to Timothy and said, you know, Demas has forsaken me. Um, so here's Demas, who's a Christian, but he didn't finish well. And here's who Paul, and Paul in the end, Paul is able to say, I have run the course, I've finished. There is a, a crown of righteousness for me. So this person was saying, according to what Paul said in Corinthians, about one star differing from another, so will the resurrection be. How great will be that star in Demas, and how much greater will be that star in Paul. And that we, salvation is free, and it is unmerited, and we are given the gift of salvation when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, not by works that any man should boast, 
But once we're born again, there are circumstances that we face which allows God to work in our life to bring us into capacity. Or when we face those circumstances, do we become hard and bitter? Sparks talked about um, the children of Israel in the wilderness. You know, they say, sent Moses and all those things. And every time at, from they came out all the way, starting from there um, at the Red Sea, they get there, they said, you know, what have you done? Have you brought us out here so they're going to kill us? And of course, God had a plan, and it happened over and over and over again. They continued to bicker and complain. And so in the circumstances where God said, you know, for 40 years, their clothes didn't wear out, their shoes didn't wear out, and they're in a desert for 40 years, and God provided for them the manna, and he also provided water when they needed it. So God made himself the provider for everything they need, yet they continually complained. God said that they um, became embittered and they did not benefit from the trials for the most part that were, uh, were there. Of course we know when they got, the first time they got to uh, the, the, the river, Jordan, cross over to Canaan, the ten spies went in, came back and even though God said I've given it to you, every place where you put the sole of your foot, it's yours, I've given it to you. He said that before the spies went in, and the spies came back, you know, and of course, too, Joshua and Caleb said, hey, they saw God, they saw the giants uh, through the eyes of God. They said, no problem. God said, we can take it, we can take it. The other ten, they only saw the giants and said, we're grasshoppers in their eyes. And as I understand, it was, uh, the, they call them the Nephilim, you know, the Anakim, they were giants. But uh, not taking into account what God said. They lived in unbelief. And of course God said, you know, you're not going in then through unbelief. And, uh, and actually in Hebrews, um, when you read through there, there, is, uh, uh, there are a number of exhortations that, uh, that the writer of the Hebrews gives uh, about the fact that we are not to be, to uh, to live in unbelief. And actually that word unbelief in Hebrews is unpersuadable. We're not to be unpersuadable um, so long as it's called today. Um, just, uh, I guess I'm more winded than I, long-winded than I thought I was. <laughs> um, well, you know, I mentioned Job, I mentioned uh, Joseph, and you just think, of, look at Paul, all that Paul went through. Um, and so he suffered so many things, but he called it for the sake of Christ. Um, and it isn't that he did anything wrong, but God saw a man that he could rely on and that he could bring into circumstances that would cause a tremendous increase, a tremendous capacity for having fellowship with God and for also what God wanted to do in the eternal state. As God stands back and he looks at this book called time, he's outside it, we're in it. And, and the reality is that time is such a minuscule thing compared to eternity. I, I read a book one time, I can't remember who wrote it, but it said, don't waste your sorrows. And the writer of the book said that the only thing we won't have in heaven that we have here are sorrows. 
Don't waste your sorrows because God means for them to mean something for you in the eternal state. And you won't have them in heaven. And it was, I read it. Uh, and I can't forget the title. I can't remember much else what it said. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, and I was thinking about even, you know, closer to home for us, um, the uh, most recent thing... Anybody, Johnny or Johnny Erickson Tata, um, you know, in the late 60s, she graduated from high school. She was 17 years old and she was planning on going to college. She and her friends went out to the beach. She dove in the water. It was too shallow and broke her neck and she became uh, paraplegic, hands legs and uh, and actually I've I've never met her in person but I have listened to her um, on on YouTube as well as on the radio and she's phenomenal phenomenal she was in you know she's there and they tell her you're never going to walk you can't do anything she's 17 years old her whole life before her. she said if she could she would have killed herself but of course she couldn't move her hands or feet or anything else uh, but through uh, Christian friends, things gradually began to change. And now she has a ministry, they call it Johnny and Friends. And, and, and I remember hearing her a couple of years ago talk about, you know, she's in a wheelchair, she's sitting there, she, she's learned to, to paint and write with her mouth and everything. Uh, but she said, all the things that God has allowed me to do, the number of people he has allowed me to speak to on his behalf. And she, she has no regrets. Um, and the interesting thing is, not only does she have this, all, all that goes along with it, but I just I heard a little bit of this morning, she's, she's had uh, two bouts of cancer, uh, and she's dealing with it right now. Um, and she's just real precious. Well, as I listened to her, she was being interviewed, um, just no bitterness in her life, and yet what God has dealt out to her. Um, and just, I, I was like, okay, so these guys are real extremes, you know, you got Job and all that happened, and Joseph, and then even Johnny, Erickson Tata, but it's like the Lord said, you know, the things that I use are unique to every person. In the Old Testament, there's a place where it says, it says apple is the, or Israel is the apple of God's eye. And in fact, there's a place where it's like, we are the apple of his eye. I mean, he knows us so intimately, he knows the number of hairs on our head. He cares for us individually. A God who is so supreme, yet he can be so involved personally. You think about that. All the people there are in the world, or there have been, yet he can hear our prayers on an individual basis. We have his attention when we go into the throne room of heaven. And he's able to look down. And I was thinking about Ephesians. I'll be through real quick here. But if you, you look at Ephesians, you've got all the superlatives in the first chapter, first, second, third chapter. And then he, uh, Paul talks about how that's going to happen. And it's on a daily basis. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit yourself to your, hu your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, masters. Of course, now the employees, employers. I remember the t one time when I read it through and then it just dawned on me that you have the superlatives of the Christian life and then you have these, what we, we could almost say, simple set of instructions. And it's like God was saying, in those set of instructions, an individual 
who doesn't have these will find circumstances in which they're required to die to their self-life. And in the dying to the self-life, they are more and more capacitated for, shell, for fellowship with God and for the release of the Holy Spirit in their lives and for that which will prepare them for not only the millennial reign, but the eternal state. Uh, so I, just a little bit of sharing, I do hope that it makes some sense. That I just thank you guys for the opportunity to fellowship with you. Lord, we just thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for the fact that you are a personal God and you know us each individually. I thank you for Jesus Christ in that moment when he died on the cross for our sins and that we have full and free forgiveness. And I thank you also that as a personal God, you sculpt each of our lives so that in the end, we will have the greatest degree of capacity possible um, through submitting to you and to the circumstances. I just commit the remainder of the day to you. And we do this in Jesus Christ's name.